Good morning. My name is Whitney, and I help lead the women's ministry here at the Thornton campus. We are really excited to be launching our men's and women's Bible studies this week, as well as our Mothers of Preschoolers group the following week. And we would love for you to join us, um, not just in person, but also in prayer for God to be working in and among those groups as they begin. I'm going to read our scripture passage for the morning from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen that what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Whitney. So we're in our series in the book of Revelation, and it's so fascinating that this book that is, is mysterious and people don't know what to do with it, it says what it's about right from the very beginning. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is this picture, an understanding of who this Jesus is that informs all of our lives. And so what the, the call that, that comes from this is as we see this picture of Jesus, that, that's probably a bigger understanding, a bigger picture than we tend to have from him. The encouragement that comes from that is endure, patiently endure. This life is, is done. So looking at this Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, patient and, patiently enduring all that we might come across in this life. And, and it's from that teaching, from this picture of Jesus, that instruction is given to seven churches, seven actual historical churches who have actual historical successes and failures. Now, there's a benefit for us that comes from this as well, because what we find in these churches is the same successes and struggles that we find in every church and every place at every time. And, and so we talked last week of, of what does it look like as we're called to patiently endure, as we are called to focus our eyes, to fix our eyes on this Jesus. What does it look like when we stop doing that? And one of the ways that we don't endure, one of the, one of the ways that we, we don't fix our eyes on him is we start to try to wrestle control away from him. We're called to patiently endure, but we can get impatient and, and we try to take matters into our own hands. I, I can fix this. I can make things right. And one of the dangers that comes from this is, is sometimes churches, as we see in these letters, sometimes churches turn inward, that we batten down the hatches, we, we make sure that we're preserving truth, that we're focused on, on what, uh, what is real and what, what it says about Jesus. But the danger that comes from this is it's easy for us to neglect love when we do that. Love for Jesus, love for others, which we're called to do. But it's also a very small move from we are preserving truth to we are the ones that say what's true and what's not. And that's a danger in the church that tries to wrestle control away from Jesus rather than patiently endure. Another danger that we see uh, for churches that don't fix their eyes on Jesus, that, that try to wrestle control away from him, is turning outwards. That we are focused on loving others above all else, which is a really good thing, and we should focus on that. 
But the danger here is, is we might not be connected to the truth of scripture and be blown off course. It's also a really easy move to go from we are called to love others to we love others above all else because love is the highest ideal rather than Jesus because we want to be liked because we don't want to rock the boat. And then the third thing that we saw is, is that when churches don't patiently endure, it's easy to compromise, to crumble from within. So all of these different examples, we're called to patiently endure, to fix our eyes on Jesus, but when we try to take control of things on our own, well, it's easy to turn inwards, outwards, or crumble from within. And it's, it's, it's been interesting reading these churches, be, uh, about these churches, because it's the same temptations that we find in churches today as well. Uh, one, of, one of the things that happens sometimes is people come and visit Calvary for the first time and they'll come up to me and, and, and they'll talk about uh, their experience at the church that they were at before and, and the things that they did wrong or where it fell short of expectation. And, and in, in, some, in a lot of ways, I'm so grateful that they're sharing with me. I, I'm hopeful that this could be a church where they find community. But there, there's a part of my mind that, that starts to wonder about who is the church that you're going to be telling stories about Calvary to someday? Because what we see here is that if we're looking for a church that doesn't face these temptations, that doesn't have the, the pull to focus our eyes to something other than Jesus, that, that doesn't uh, have the temptation to try to wrestle control away from him, we're, we're never going to find that church. And we're going to keep telling stories about how it let us down. I, I mean, yes, absolutely. There are churches who have lost mission, their mission. And there are ways that we as a church can, can improve. There, there's so many ways that we can continue to grow as a church. But if, if our expectation is that we can find a church that doesn't face these temptations, well, we're never going to find that church. In part, because we, the people who were in the church, are part of giving in to those temptations as well. Every church is faced with these temptations. When we are called to patiently endure, to fix our eyes on Jesus, there's pull to do elsewhere. Whether that's wrestling control away from him or we find a new batch of temptation in chapter three. So what we see in Revelation three is, is the story of these two churches. Uh, when they are called to patiently endure, as all churches are, the story of two churches who have stopped caring. That as they've called to fix their eyes on Jesus, to patiently endure in this life, no matter what's going on around them, we see that they have stopped caring. So first and foremost, I, I want to ask the question of what happens when we don't care? And it's, it's fascinating that this is written to churches, people professing Jesus' name. Shouldn't they care about Jesus? Isn't, isn't the fact that they're a church demonstrate the fact that they care about Jesus in some regard? But the difficulties that we find here is, is that it's easy for us to stop caring in a couple of different ways. One, when we assume everything is going well. We tend to stop caring when we assume everything's going well. So uh, picture it like this. Uh, you're in your home. You don't see any water damage of any kind. You don't see stains starting to develop. It doesn't smell musky or, or anything in there. So obviously, we're not going to care. We're not going to be focused on, is there a leak behind the wall? Things look fine. Things are going well, so why would I be concerned about what might be going on that I don't see, that I don't realize when things look like they're going well? Why would my focus be on anything else? Or another time that we stop caring is, is when there's something else that seems more pressing, more urgent, more fulfilling, and that starts to get our focus. That becomes what we care about. It's like how we might stop caring about the healthy dinner that we made for ourselves when someone walks in with our favorite pizza. And so what is it that, that's going on in these churches that, that has caused them to stop caring? 
And we see the story of two churches who have done exactly that. Whether they assume things are going okay and so that their focus has, has, has become less clear, less, less on Jesus, or because there's other things that have been vying for their affections, for their focus, for their care. And, and the thing is that this is a temptation that we still find in churches today as well. That when we are called to patiently endure, there is a pull in all of us to just not care, either as much as we did before or stop caring altogether. But the worry of this passage, what we find in Revelation chapter three, is the language is much more severe than what we read about in chapter two. What we read about in, the, in the, the, these churches that we find there is, is much harsher language. See, back in Revelation chapter two, we talked about how there was this formula where Jesus writes to the angel of these churches. He says, I know you. Uh, I know who you are. I know what you're like. And it goes and gives these descriptions as here's the places that you're doing really well before it goes to, but I also know you and here's where you are called to repent and come back to me. Well, these two churches, Sardis and Laodicea, they have a different formula. It starts by saying, I know you. I know what you're like but all of the language is reserved for judgment. We, we saw that first and foremost with this church in Sardis, this church that from what we can tell, they have stopped caring as well. That they, like all churches, are called to patiently endure, to have their eyes focused on Jesus, and yet they haven't done that. Jesus starts by saying, I know your works. And that's that formula that we've, uh, after we read chapter two, it's like, okay, we know what that means. He's gonna start saying what's, what they've done well. I know your works, here's what you've done well. But he actually says, I know your works. You think you're alive, but you're dead. You think things are going fine. You think you're doing enough. You think you're doing all the right things, but in reality, you're dead. You just look the part. That you're, you think that you're doing enough, you're focused on the right things, but you aren't at all. You think you're alive but you're dead. And so the instruction given to them is to wake up. Wake up. Some people read this, this letter and, and think that it has some connection to uh, the situation of the city as well. So this instruction Jesus gives to the church of Sardis looks a lot like the situation of the city of Sardis as well. So Sardis was built kind of in the, this, this nook of, of a mountain range. And so because of that, people looked at it and they saw how well defended it was. They, they thought this place could never be defeated. It can never be conquered. And so there was this phrase, uh, conquering Sardis was, was something to, to indicate it, it will never happen. It's impossible. Kind of like how we might talk about when pigs fly. So that, oh, oh that's going to happen when someone conquers Sardis. Or uh, that, that'll happen when pigs fly or when Broncos next make the playoffs. It's something that shows it's just not going to happen. And yet Sardis was conquered twice. Two times they were conquered before this. And the reason for that is they thought they were safe. We're secure. No one can touch us. No one, no one can defeat us here. And so they, they had uh, whole sections of the city where they just didn't have people on watch. Like, no one can climb this mountain range and come down it. So we don't need a guard to this section. And that's exactly what happened. People scaled the mountain, went to the front door, opened it up, and welcome invading army. They weren't on alert anymore. They needed to wake up. And that looks like the situation of this church as well. Like you are comfortable. 
to this church in Sardis, you've grown comfortable. You think things are fine. You think you're doing enough. You might look the part. You might, you might be, uh, be doing what you think is enough, but it's not. You think you're alive. You think you're alert, but you need to wake up. Now, there's different things that this could mean. What is it that they've stopped caring about? What is it that, that they've stopped being alert for? Maybe it's the, the parts of Christianity that, that's sacrificial. We're all, living the Christian life is not one that's easy. It's not one where we get to uh, maintain control of our life. We, we turn in submission to Jesus. But it's easy, isn't it, to just say, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus, but, but just keep doing whatever we want in our lives. Isn't that easy enough for us to, to say those words? Yeah, we're following him, but we're not making any, any uh, changes or responses to him with our lives. Or maybe it's, it's evangelism. Maybe they've stopped caring. Maybe they're not telling others about Jesus. Maybe they're not fulfilling what it is that, that we're all called to do, to make disciples of all nations. One of the ways that we can do this is, is by looking at the text. And, and one thing that might stick out to us is there's no comment about any suffering that they're going through. There's no mention of persecution. I mean, back in chapter two, it's, it's all of this. I, I know you're going through hard times. I, I know you've persevered through, through difficulty. I know you patiently endured. But to this church in, in Sardis, there's none of that. I know that this is an argument from silence, but, but isn't it striking that that's missing? And it might make us wonder, why aren't they facing persecution? Well, maybe they're not worth persecuting. Are they telling others about Jesus? Are, are they going out and spreading the gospel? Do people even know that they're Christians? And if not, then why would people bother persecuting them? Whatever it is, there is something about their life where they think they are doing enough. They think that they are following Jesus when in reality, they're just following him in name only. That they start to look like their neighbors as well. They're not living sacrificially for him. They're not following him in the way that all of us are called to do. They're living in both worlds. We, we get to claim that we're following Jesus and yet our lives are not looking like they are. They're not doing enough. And, and we see this sort of thing happen that we tend to stop caring when we become used to something. We, we tend to stop caring when, when things are going well. I mean, I mean, in our jobs, when our jobs feel secure, that the temptation starts to come in of to, maybe I could just coast a little bit. Or, or our marriages are, have, have never been better and, and that, that a thought comes in our head, well, I don't need to focus as intentionally uh, on making sure this marriage is going well. Or, or we, we have really good grades in a class and uh, we're assigned an assignment that just really sounds like a bother and it's like, well, I could take this one off and still be doing well. And following Jesus, we could say, well, I mean, it looks like things are going all right, so I could put my focus on other things. But the difficulty when we buy into that mindset, when, when we believe that we could put our care onto other things or just stop caring altogether, it, it's hard to get back into it. All of a sudden we look around and, and this job that we thought was secure, we realize, oh, I've, I've, been, I've been slacking off too much and it's not secure anymore. Or we, we wake up one day and we realize, man, my marriage is really shaky. Or we look and we ask the question, how am I failing this class? Or we read a letter from Jesus that says, we think we're alive, but we're dead. See, when things are going well or, or when we're used to something, we tend to stop caring. 
but the language that Jesus uses for his church at Sardis is, is drastic. He says, if you don't do this, if you don't wake up, if you don't begin caring again, if you don't patiently endure, if you don't fix your eyes on me, well, then I'm coming for you. I'm coming in judgment for you. If you don't begin to care anew, if you don't wake up, well, then there's judgment coming. We see similar uh, language used for the church of Laodicea. So just to give a little a bit of background of the city of Laodicea, this was uh, probably the, the most significant, if not the most wealthy city in the region that they were in. They became uh, bigger and grew uh, incredibly wealthy as they were the center of this trade hub that were there, uh, that was there, let alone the wealth that they generated for themselves. They had, they had some thriving industries. They had uh, a method of curing a lot of eye diseases. So they had eye doctors there, which made them incredibly popular, but also that generated a lot of wealth. They also had uh, the, this fabric, this textile industry that, that no one else in the surrounding area had, and so people would flock to them to, to buy expensive clothes from them, and it, and it generated a lot of wealth. So it made them incredibly affluent, but more than that, it made them increasingly self-sufficient. So the region was known for earthquakes, and there was an earthquake that came in and actually destroyed parts of Sardis, who we just talked about in Philadelphia, who, who is the other church that's mentioned in this chapter. Like whole sections of those two cities were destroyed. And so Rome came with essentially relief funds uh, that they gave to these two cities so that they could rebuild. Well, years after that, an earthquake comes and destroys parts of Laodicea. And so Rome comes again, uh, offering to give money and Laodicea says, you know what, we're good. We got this and they rebuilt the city with their own funds. But not just that, but they made the city bigger and more lavish than it was before. And so we see this, this really wealthy city, this really self-sufficient city, and it's to that place, the church that's in there, that Jesus writes these words. This is uh, Revelation 3.14. It says, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So he starts, uh, as all these letters have, with these descriptions about Jesus. And as we said, these, these descriptions are not just random ones pulled from chapter one. It's not as though uh, John's throwing a dart at chapter one and saying, which one does it land on? That's what I'm gonna write to this church. No, it, it's purposeful to that church. And it starts by saying that from Jesus, the amen, the faithful witness. It tells us that what he's saying is true and that his counsel can be trusted. It says, written from Jesus, the beginning of creation. Not that Jesus himself was created, but all of creation has its beginning in Jesus. That everything that we see on this earth, anything that any person has, comes from Jesus. That description will be helpful for us. But then it says, I know your works. You're this city that's so wealthy, so self-sufficient. You, you think there's nothing that you need, but you're lukewarm. This is a passage that's been uh, misunderstood a little bit uh, throughout 
uh, at least modern history. Uh, some people will get described as, as a lukewarm Christian. And the, the idea that they take from this is like, if only you were on fire for God, or I guess the opposite would be a godless pagan, but you're not, you're stuck in the middle, and so God's gonna spit you out. Like, I mean, wouldn't God be upset with the godless pagan more than someone? So that's not what it's talking about. It's equating Laodicea to water. It says, if only you were hot, like, like a nearby hot spring to, to the city that so many people go to for the restorative aspects of that water. It, it, can, it can bring healing, it, it can bring restoration to people. If only you were like that, or, or if only you were like cold water, which is so refreshing, which gives nourishment and soothes people and provides relief for others. If, if only you were like that, you were the goodness of hot water and the goodness of cold water, but you're neither of those things, you're lukewarm. Or maybe think about it through the lens of, of coffee. Uh, many of us in here are drinking some of the coffee that's provided. We're, we're getting our caffeine in, intake from drinking hot coffee. And, and there's something incredibly beautiful about a nice cup of hot coffee. Like, like the warmth that it has on your hands, especially as, as weather is getting colder. Uh, the, the, the warmth that it feels on your inside, that it, can, that it can lift your spirits just by the heat that it gives you. That there's something so, uh, so uh, um, in incredibly restorative to, to our, our attitude, our disposition by just drinking a nice cup of hot coffee. But in one of those hot days, maybe hot coffee isn't what we need. And so there, there's a place, at least in my mind, there's a place for a nice iced coffee or a cold brew. That, that we can uh, have something soothing on a really warm day while still maintaining our caffeine addiction. But what happens if you make your coffee in the morning and then something pops up? Maybe, maybe there, you got distracted, there's things to do around the house, or someone, someone comes over and so you're talking to them and an hour goes by, and then another hour, and then you finally remember, oh, I made coffee this morning. And so you go up to your coffee and you take a big swig. And you expect it to be the coffee that you made it to be. I made hot coffee today. I want that, that uh, tremendous comfort that comes from that cup of coffee. Or I made iced coffee today. I, I'm looking for that refreshing uh, drink after, uh, because it's really warm this morning. You go to that cup of coffee expecting it to be what its purpose is, and it's disgusting. You know that shock that comes when you're drinking coffee and it's not the temperature that it's supposed to be? There's a gag reflex. There's a spitting out of coffee. This is coffee that's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's not hot. It's not cold. So it's useless. If we didn't have additional ice cubes or microwaves, the only purpose of that coffee was to be poured down the drain. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. His church, this church that he knows, if only you were hot, or if only you were cold, but you're neither of those things. You Laodiceans, with all your wealth and your self-sufficiency, thinking that you have plenty in life, you're actually worthless. This is what he continues to say in verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich, I am prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is really harsh language here. Jesus says, you think that you have all this wealth, you have all this self-sufficiency, you think things are going well, but you're actually wretched. You're pitiable, you're spiritually worthless. 
And remember some of the background that we gave for this city. This this was a place that that was the crossroads of trade. It, It had so much wealth there. And yet Jesus says, you're poor. This was a place that had eye doctors. People from all over would flock to to receive healing and and it generated a lot of of interest in the place and a lot of wealth. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're blind. They had this thriving textile industry where they they alone produced this really fine, uh, this fine material that people would would come to 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 make really, uh, wealthy people would come to to make really exclusive clothes. It's kind of like they had their own section of Cherry Creek where the only place where these stores are, that if you want to buy expensive clothes, you got to go to these shops. That was the city. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're naked. That you think that you have all of these things. You think that you are, are wealthy and successful and you have all that you need. And Jesus says you are spiritually worthless. I mean, how does he say that about a church? I mean, it's one thing to critique the city that they're, that they're in. But another thing to say to the church of Laodicea, you're wretched. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. How does he say that about a church that he knows? Well, I, I think it, we, we can get an answer because of what that critique is. That their focus has been filled with these other things. That they are called to fix their eyes on Jesus, to patiently endure, and yet other things have vied for their focus. They've started to care for other things in, instead. And we see that their focus is on their wealth, their self-sufficiency, their prosperity. And yet it was these things that led to their spiritual uselessness. Now, I, I don't get a lot of joy out of reading the harsh critiques of these passages. I, I hope you not, don't think that I'm up here just relishing, like, yeah, I get to call people wretched. That, that's not my idea of a good time. But I'm also concerned because I don't want this to sound like we are looking outside of this room and saying this is other people's problems. Because while we talked about that every single one of these seven churches, that there's something that, that uh, reflects the successes and struggles of every church at every time at every place, I think there's something particular about the church of Laodicea that has some similarities with the modern American church, which would include this church. I mean, the obvious connection is is the idea of wealth, that whether or not we individually have wealth, we are in a very wealthy nation. And there's a lot of benefits that we have that others around the world, others throughout history do not have because of the wealth of of this nation. Then you add to that that this is the nation of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the bootstraps. That we are all about making yourself, being self-sufficient. That is an ideal for us. So to hear hear this critique about Laodicea creates some worry for me that we might have some similarities. That there is quite a bit. There's so much in our society, in our world that that comes by way of distraction or enticement or different things for us to put our cares and concerns about. All these things that vie for our attention from keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And maybe it is wealth. That's the thing that we're, we're living for. We make decisions based off how can we get more money. That, that is our driving force. But that's not the case for all of us. What is the thing that most gets our focus? What, what is our greatest care in our lives? I mean, it could be our families or the sense of security, having comfort in our lives, status, our, our work, 
our free time or making decisions so that we can someday have a ton of free time, whatever it might be, there's all kinds of things that vie for our focus, for our care. And those are good things. So many of those things we, we want in our lives and rightfully want in our lives. But what happens when they become our, our full focus? What happens when they become our greatest care? When they start to define what is our identity? How we spend our time? What is our direction in life? What gives us hope here? Because it's what we answer the question, what are we spending our time on? What defines our identity? What's giving us direction? What's giving us hope? How we answer those things? Well, that starts to show what our greatest care is. Is it demonstrating that our eyes are focused on Jesus? Or have we given in to the other things around us like Laodicea? And we've begun to care for other things. And we start to care for the gifts from our creator rather than the creator himself. That we start to, to focus on the things in this world that we love rather than the source of all love. That our eyes go to the things that we save our money for rather than the one who can truly save, who truly lasts, who truly reigns, who has given us life. What is it that we give our care to? What gets our focus? I found a quote, it's kind of a lengthy quote, um, but, I, but I think it, 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 it does better than what I could have been able to do on my own. So James Hamilton in his commentary asks a series of questions on this exact idea. He says, in your unguarded moments, so when we're by ourselves, so no one's looking at us, we're not performing for anyone, we, we're left on our own, those quiet moments that we have on our own. In your unguarded moments, how do you regard yourself? What's the default setting of your self-perception? He says, unless we consciously, explicitly remind ourselves of the absolute purity of God, unless we fix our eyes on Jesus, which provokes a recognition of our impurity, unless we have our focus on him, we will slip into thinking that we're doing pretty well. We must remind ourselves of the gospel and its truths. We must allow the reality of the gospel to communicate to us our constant, ongoing need for Christ. See, if we're not, if we're not reminded of our constant, ongoing need for the gospel, if we do not continually feel that Jesus is our greatest need, well, then other needs will subtly but surely come. Come to seem more urgent, more significant, more relevant. And if we don't carefully and consciously oppose the growing significance of these felt needs, which are really false needs, unless we work against those to focus our eyes back on Jesus, this is what happens. He says that we will find the world and its agenda is what's relevant to us. That's what we care about. And on the flip side, for all practical purposes, God and the gospel and the kingdom are irrelevant. What is the need that we most feel? What gets our focus? What is it that we care about? See, the warning of chapter three is of churches that don't care, and that church is described by Jesus as dead or lukewarm, that is spiritually worthless. By Jesus himself, they're called that. 
And it's a church that's gonna look exactly like its neighbors. There's no distinction between those who claim to be following Jesus and those who don't. They're both caring for the same things. They're both focused on the same things. It's a church that's called to pursue, to pursue Jesus with their all, but instead all in that church pursue other things. And I think we see this today as well. That there's so many people who, like Sardis, would, would point to, look, things are going fine. Look, I, I look like how I'm supposed to look. I, I, we see people point to church attendance. I, I attend church at least above average, which isn't saying much, but at least above average. I'm looking like a Christian ought to look, and yet maybe Sunday is the only day that we're reminded of Jesus. Or, or uh, I'm, I'm doing all of these good works. Look, look at these things that I'm doing, but it's not connected to the good that's been done for us. Maybe we have all the adornments of Christianity. We have the right politics. We're surrounded by other Christians. We fight for the right things, but we don't have the identity of it. Pursuing the Jesus who saved us. I think we see that as well. That there are plenty of churches, plenty of people in churches who have just stopped caring. And yet what's beautiful about this passage, even in the midst of all the harsh language, what's beautiful here is that it shows us that Jesus cares. That Jesus cares about his churches. I mean, the mere fact that he is writing letters to people, churches that are described as dead or spiritually worthless, the mere fact that he is writing letters to them demonstrates his care. The mere fact that they are preserved for all the other churches, which is all churches that feel the same temptation and pull of these seven, demonstrates that he cares. The fact that he knows his church. I know you. I know this is hard. I know it's difficult. I know there's other things around you. I know patiently enduring is difficult. I know surrendering control is difficult. I know keeping your eyes fixed on me is difficult. The fact that he acknowledges what these churches are going through demonstrates that he cares. That's good news. I think it's good news as well because these letters are written telling us that there's still time to repent. Imagine if all of these were written as, I know this about you, I have this against you, here's where you're doing terrible, and you had your chance. That's not what these letters say. Instead, each one of them contains what we saw written to Sardis. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Continue to do what you've done well in the past. Keep doing well, and where you've not, where your eyes have drifted, where you focus on other things, come back. Fix your eyes on me. Repent. There's still time for that, and that is good news. And, and it's good news uh, because it demonstrates, or it, it's good news because of what we read in, in uh, verse 19. Jesus uh, continues speaking. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus says that, that I'm speaking in this way. I'm calling you to repent because I love you. In the church that this was written to, this is Laodicea. This is a church that Jesus is going to spit out. He says, I love you. And that is why I care enough to bring correction. I, I love you. And so that is why I'm calling you to come back. That even churches that are dead or spiritually worthless are the ones that Jesus loves. And he hasn't given up on. They continue to call back to him. But it's good news as well because Jesus keeps his promises. 
All of these letters have a, have a same basic formula. Here is Jesus, a picture of him that tends to be bigger than we have. And, and it's because this is our Jesus, because he's b- uh, more worthy, because he, he's, he's the best thing that we can fix our eyes on. Uh, it, it gives us instruction to repent and come back to him. And then there's a promise for those who do, for those who conquer, for those who fix their eyes on him, for those who patiently endure. Each church has given promises. Promises like the ones written to the church of Philadelphia. Uh, Verse nine, it it says, uh, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down to you before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I I mean, there's some incredible promises just in in this passage that's written to a church that's doing well. They're suffering, yes, but they are doing well. And it says, I am with you. I am coming soon. There will be victory. Uh, Hold on, endure patiently. There's, There's a promise of conquering to every single one of these churches. And what we see in the story of Revelation that all of these promises given to these seven churches, every single one of them is revealed and unveiled throughout the rest of the letter. That it's no coincidence that the promises that we see in chapter two and three are the exact things that are poured out in the church in chapters 20 through 22. I have a chart here that shows how every single one of these promises, every single one of them shows up again as what is poured out on the churches What is the reality now for churches is fully revealed at the very end of the book when all things are made new. This is a Jesus who keeps his promises. Keep your eyes fixed on me and here is what you need to to endure in this life. It shows us that this Jesus alone is worthy. This Jesus alone is is worth keeping our eyes focused on. This Jesus alone is worth our care and our focus. So we listen to him. Every single one of these letters call, have this repent to turn back, to hear what has been said and repent, to listen to him, to focus our eyes back on him and repent. And so we spend our days going back to what is it that he said so that we can be reminded anew as to why he is worthy of our focus, why he is more worth our care than anything else, why it is that we turn to him no matter what is going on around us, that we listen to him above all. It's why we surround ourselves with other Christians, not so that we look the part, so that we can have other people hold us accountable. Are we listening to him? Are our eyes fixed on him? It's no coincidence that Jesus is writing to churches because it's in churches, even the ones that we say things terrible about or let us down, it's in churches that there's growth and the ability to endure in this life. But ultimately, the the best part of this, the ultimate picture of good news, how we're able to endure here, how we're able to live in this life in this way that we're called to, the best thing that Jesus gives to us so that we can fix our eyes on him, so that we can endure, is himself. And we see that in what's written to the church of Laodicea. This church is so wealthy, they can, they can handle things on their own, they can take care of whatever they need to do, they're so self-sufficient, they're so prosperous, and Jesus says to them, you're spiritually worthless, but come. 
and buy from me. Buy what you need that you can't generate on your own. Buy from me, which will actually give you the, the right focus in this life. Buy from me, which will help you to endure all that life might throw uh, at you. Buy from me so that you can flourish and conquer in this life. That Jesus gives, himself, uh, gives us himself. That's why we have this book. And how easy is it for us, for our eyes to wander, to look at other things, to care about other things, to not look to see, am I truly following him or just looking like it? How wonderful is it that he gives us himself, this picture of him that helps us to endure? It's an incredible promise about our future. It's an incredible promise about our past and it fulfills what God's plan has been for eternity to come. Because the, the words that we find, the, the picture of how we endure that's given to this church of Laodicea, buy from me, is a fulfillment of what we've always craved, what we've always needed, and what God has promised. Because it sounds a heck of a lot like what's said in Isaiah 55. This is what was said. It's, God speaks, he says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, that's okay, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do we put our focus, why do we care about things that aren't worth it, that won't stand, that won't last? Instead, listen diligently to me. He who has an ear, let him hear and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. How do we endure with all that this life has for us? Come, all who thirst, he who has no money, buy and eat. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these letters to these seven churches, that in each one of them, it's not as though we are trying to find which one is us, but seeing that in each of these churches, we have the same temptation, the same pull, the same call to patiently endure, and the same difficulty to do that. And we are grateful that you've given us examples of, of people going through the same thing. You have not left us to feel isolated or thinking that it's only us who struggles to be patient to endure. You've also given us encouragement, ways to, to continue to follow after you, a hope for a future and a reality for right now that though it may be hard to see, it's easy to become overwhelmed by what's going on around us. You help us to see what's real. You help us to see yourself. And you've given us all that we need for salvation, for the new heavens and the new earth, living there, but also for this life now, with all hope and satisfaction and direction in life. And so it's to you and you alone that we pray.